Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, debating the administrative state. And Richard, our longtime listeners will remember you had a book out earlier this year entitled The Dubious Morality of Modern Administrative Law. And now there's another book out somewhat in conversation with yours, although it steadfastly refuses to mention your your name, by two people that we have talked about on the show in the past, Cass Sunstein and Adrian Vermeule, both Harvard Law professors, two guys who, despite their co-authorship, come from different places. I mean, Sunstein, more a man of the left, served in the Obama administration. Vermeule as part of that post-liberal integralist strand on the right. And their argument here is that the administrative state, that is all the government agencies and departments that have acquired the power to make law or policy despite the fact that no one elected them, is more or less a good thing. And so let's start here. Um, if any of our listeners read uh, this duo's recent op-ed in the New York Times, they would see that they are in many ways sort of subtweeting you and your book. In other words, they're engaging you without explicitly mentioning you because your book is focused on the moral problems with administrative law, and you would draw a lot there on the work of the legal philosopher Lon Fuller whom Sunstein and Vermeule then enlist to make their side of the argument in this Times piece. So, Richard, for the lay listener, why is Lon Fuller important to this argument, and why do you read him differently than Sunstein and Vermeule? Sure. I mean, actually, there's a stage of the argument that you missed, which is in 2018 in the Harvard Law Review, uh, Vermeule and Sunstein wrote an essay uh, which relied upon Lon Fuller to explain why the administrative state is consistent with its morality. Now, Lon Fuller wrote a classic book called The Morality of Law, and this was done in 1964. It was done seven years after he had a debate with H.L.A. Hart on whether law was just positivism or whether or not there was a minimum moral constraint. At the time, most people thought that Hart had won the debate. Over time, I think more and more people, including Hart towards the end of his life, began to say that uh, if you try to put together a legal system and you have no moral compass whatsoever, uh, you're going to be in very great trouble. So Hart then spoke about the minimum content of natural law, and what he then did is he included things like prohibitions against theft and rape, and what someone starts to say, well, if you can't steal somebody's property, can you prevent him from using it? And it turns out the basic libertarian prohibitions to which he appealed are capable of expansion. Fuller was very much in that tradition, and he came and wrote this book at a time before the huge administrative state. There were some important agencies like the Federal Communications Commission that did have the power to allocate frequency, and he was aware of the difficulties associated with them. But his famous example, which is quoted everywhere, was about a hapless lawmaker, generally well-intentioned, named Rex. He's a king, so there's no separation of powers issues, no federalism issues, and what he wants to do is to put out some laws and what are the kinds of defects that you have to worry about. And you worry about such things as obscurity, inconsistency, retroactivity, unintelligibility, and the like. And, and Fuller comes to say that it doesn't matter what the particular substance of the law turns out to be. If you fail with those particular minimum constraints, uh, then you have not been able to satisfy the requirements for a 
a decent system of law. Uh, retroactivity is the one which I think stands out most conspicuously. And at the time that Fuller had written, there were relatively few examples of major retroactive laws. Within several years after the book had been written, there was a large development in both constitutional and administrative law, reversing some early precedents in which the basic line was whether you're talking about due process of takings, uh, you're aware of the fact that if you rely on the government, that they may change their mind. And since it's foreseeable that they may change their mind, you take the risk of their misconduct, which is a case that proves much too much. Uh, but certainly things had moved. And so when Sunstein and Bermule write in 2018, it turns out there's a lot of retroactivity in the system and so forth. And there's a kind of an uneasy tension between what Fuller said and their efforts to try and make good on the retroactivity problem and on the flip-flop problem, that is, since questions of law are to be decided by administrative agencies, given deference by the courts in cases where things are not, quote, clear, which itself is an unclear term, uh, what happens is the Democrats go out and the Republicans go in, you get a large flip-flop. If you treated these as questions of law that were to be decided by courts using administrative input as a guide to construction but not binding in any deferential say, you don't get those particular inputs. And so the lack of the flip-flop is, I think, something that Fuller was very much in favor of. And so when I wrote this book, uh, my basic position was uh, that on the areas that Fuller had talked about, the modern administrative estate has a very bad fit. The problem gets even more complicated because the administrative state is more than making rules and regulations pursuant to statutes. It's also dealing with the adjudication of particular cases. And Fuller doesn't talk about that because he's just not interested in it. Uh, but there's a strong natural law tradition which starts to say, well, you're entitled to a hearing before an impartial judge. You're entitled to know the charges that are made against you and you're entitled to be able to respond, to call witnesses, to cross-examine, and so forth. And there's no question that Fuller writes in the tradition where those things would be appropriate. It's also the case, if you look at the modern administrative state, there is, I regard as a extremely dangerous tendency, which they do not talk about in their book, but which I have talked about on multiple occasions, of administrative agencies essentially litigating cases in front of courts that are inside the agency. Uh, so the head of the agencies or the commissioners actually appoint the judges to hear the case that they bring. And surprisingly enough, what they do is they win 98% of the time. Uh, there are several famous cases about this, most notably a case called Lucia, about a fellow who had engaged in standard practices trying to promote his securities company. He was charged and convicted before a single person inside the SEC who was a social security judge who essentially was appointed by them to hear the case and he had about a 99% conviction rate and the Supreme Court managed to set it aside on a technical argument having to do with appointments, but they never addressed the due process issue, which seems to me to be absolutely paramount. This is a biased tribunal in the sense that classical situations would not want. So in my view, if you put together both the legislative stuff, the flip-flops, the retroactivity, and then you take into account the idea that agencies can essentially have adjudicative branches within them, uh, what you do is you see the seeds of major dangers inside the administrative state. So let's just move through what Sunstein and Vermeule talk about as the major dimensions of this argument. We can flesh out the disagreements between you and them. Uh, one of the criticisms of the administrative state that you often hear is that a lot of the times they're usurping powers that should belong to Congress, they're moving all this power inside the executive branch. 
my favorite recent example of this, which I believe I've used on the show before, is that we had this huge fight during the Obama administration over the contraceptive mandate, which is nowhere to be found in the text of the Affordable Care Act. That comes from a decision that was made by the Obama Department of Health and Human Services, which was given latitude to make those kinds of decisions in the legislation. But that is a part of Sunstein and Vermeule's defense. They say these are grants of power that came from the Congress. Congress created the Department of Transportation. They created the National Labor Relations Board. They created the EPA. So how are they having their power usurped? What's your well, response to that? Well, I mean, to some extent, you answer it both ways. In some cases, they're not having their power usurped. What happens is these agencies are given much too much of a mandate by the general statute, and it ought to be cut back. So, for example, I have always been a foe of the National Labor Relations Act uh, to the extent that it authorizes the NLRB to negate private contracts between willing employees and a firm by imposing an exclusive duty of representation on a union which allows no individual worker to make his own contact. And so in those particular cases, it's not a usurpation of authority, but it seems to me to be unconstitutional. But then there are other cases where it's the other way around. Right now, there's a big controversy on what we so-called the joint employer doctrine, which is a McDonald's franchise hires somebody, and McDonald's essentially tells the franchise how they're supposed to make French fries and how they're supposed to do their advertisement and their signage and so forth. And the traditional doctrine has always been that the only employer of this particular worker is the franchisee. And under the Obama administration, they pushed very, very hard to say that McDonald's, even though it doesn't hire or fire these workers, is a joint employee uh, so that you can sue them for an unfair labor practice over a franchisee whom they don't control. If you then have one of two solutions, if you then decide that McDonald's has to control the franchisees, it completely destroys the particular benefits of the system. If you say, oh, they can't do that, then it exposes them to huge amounts of financial liability. And all of this was done in the teeth of established case law and long practice that went the the other way. Uh, so that when you see a statute like this, you can see sins coming in both directions. On labor issues as well, there's a critical question as to how it is that you define a bargaining unit over which the majority rule takes place. Traditionally, you start looking at fairly large units like plants on one hand or major departments. And, you know, uh, the, uh, the Obama administration specialized in trying to figure out what's the smallest unit in which you can get a majority or the largest one within a majority. So we'll say the men's suit department, not all the workers in Macy's will be in fact subject to a union. And I regard that as a kind of administrative bias, because if you look at the number of times that labor people would have pretty good conversations with high officials in the Obama administration, including the president, they're very often management was kept at a distance. And so the discretion that you get under the particular statute can be exercised in a way which really pushes the needle more to one side than it does to another. And that, again, illustrates the dangers of modern administrative state with these broad grants. Uh, much of what an administrative agency can do cannot be subject to review. Uh, to put it in, in nice parlance, the power to investigate is the power to destroy. Uh, so that if you just launch an investigation that's formal against the bank 
or any other organization that needs state licenses, you could easily be the case that the moment the prosecution is given, uh, your licenses are suspended and you're out of business. And, and so given these kinds of enormous powers, I think one ought to be extremely cautious about how this works. And what's the astonishing thing about the Sunstein and Vermeule book is all the cases that I would regard as administrative horror stories are nowhere mentioned in the book. They tend to talk about some highly technical cases from 20 or 30 years ago and saying, well, the doctrine on retroactivity can be read this way or that way. Uh, but what they don't do is go on the ground and look at the kinds of cases that are now active in litigation in a whole variety of areas where I think the charges about abuse in connection with the Clean Water Act, in connection with the operation of the SEC, uh, with the incredible arbitrariness with respect to pipelines where a trial judge, particularly James Bosberg, is willing to shut down an empire pipeline because he doesn't think they've complied with one tiny portion of NEPA, that is the National Environmental Policy Act, only to see himself rudely you know, reversed on appeal uh, before the order can go into effect. But you don't need that kind of uncertainty. And the thing to remember, even if a wrong decision gets reversed, in the interim, uh, the uncertainty and the confusion, the effects upon long-term contracts and so forth is very, very bad. And if, God forbid, you shut down a major pipeline when there's serious shortages of energy, then it becomes a very, very large catastrophe. And so what I did in my book instead of just talking about doctrine at the abstract, is I would go through the record of particular cases and indicate why it was that I thought that a particular judgment did not make sense in light of what they call the organic statute, that is the basic governing statute, not the Administrative Procedure Act, uh, but the NEPA statute, the Securities and Exchange Act, and so forth. And so many of these cases turn out to make absolute nonsense out of reasonably sensible statutes, and I think that's a kind of an addictive problem that really takes place, and that has a huge impact on very large areas of the economy. At one point in a quip towards the end of their book, Sunstein and Vermeule talk about, well, there was a case called Mead, and you have to decide whether a diary is a day book covered under one category of cases or under another. And frankly, my dear said, Scarlett, I don't give a damn. Uh, these tariff classifications are straight 19th century stuff, and they're small and they're done. But if the question is to whether or not every police department in America is going to have its sergeants and lieutenants are subject to an overtime law, that's a rather bigger situation because now what you're doing is completely taking over the budget and management of these independent state agencies. So I think it's absolutely critical to understand just how important this entire system of law is. And in my view is when you actually look at it on the merits, most of these modern developments have had very deleterious effects for the way in which this country is run. Another issue that they talk about here is the one of independent federal agencies. So organs of government that live in the executive branch, but that are not subject to the full control of the president. So we've seen this fight of late with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. That's an issue that's gone before the Supreme Court. But our listeners can think of the Federal Trade Commission, the FCC, the Fed. And to people who complain that those kinds of institutions are usurping the president's power, as it were, uh, Sunstein and Vermeule say, I'm going to read you a quote here, the independent agencies are not all that independent. 
Their chairs are appointed by the president, after all, and most of the time their policy preferences are broadly in line with the White House, even if the president cannot order these appointees to make particular decisions. The power of appointment, together with other authorities, ensures that they are anything but a headless fourth branch of government. Well, Does that satisfy sure, you? No, it doesn't. I mean, what clearly is the case that the ability to appoint makes a huge difference in these situations, uh, but uh, oftentimes what happens is these people get appointed and they change their points of view, and there's a question as to whether or not they're going to uh, stop with the president. I think the defense of the administrative agency is much more persuasive if it comes from another direction. Administrative agencies of an independent nature were first introduced um, with the internal the Interstate Commerce Act of 1886. And what happens is this was a rate-setting body which was put together to figure out how you control rates that are going to be charged by railroads. The problem became kind of pitched because there'd been a case involving the Wabash Railroad in which was indicated that the states could have some control over the pricing of the services of a railroad renders within their borders. And since these trains go across multiple state lines, it's going to be a real disaster if you get inconsistent determination for each particular leg of a trip. And the whole dormant commerce stuff on the commerce palette indicated that a uniform rule in these cases is generally to preferred unless you could find some strong local reasons that would justify some kind of a deviation. Now, what then happened is uh, they decided the federal government should take it over. There is no standard government department which is pretty good at setting rates. So if you look at the parallel development in the states that take place in the 1880s and 1890s, they are basically creating independent rate-making bodies. And that's a flexibility which is formally denied uh, to the United States Constitution with its rigid tripartite situation, legislative, executive, and judiciary. But they do it anyhow. And this is done 1886, 87. By 1934, this information stuff has been in place for over 50 years. And then one of the agencies, the FTC, uh, Roosevelt tries to fire Mr. Humphrey. Uh, Humphrey dies, and his estate says, you have to pay me for the salary. This is not a battle over $500 or $1,000 of lost pay. It's the question of whether or not the agencies can control it. There was an earlier case called Myers against the uh, United States, I think it was, in which the issue was whether or not the president had the power to remove various kinds of civil servants. And it was held, certainly everybody agreed with this, that key presidential advisors in his cabinet have to be subject to removal by the president because he is not going to be required to have discord within the ranks. There was a lot of disagreement about whether you could fire an inferior employee, in that case a postmaster third class sitting out somewhere in the West, could you throw this particular guy? out or not, the hard problem. The administrative agencies come up seven years later, and Justice Sutherland, you know, one of the conservatives says, look, I don't see in the administrative agency, which has these rate-making and enforcement policies, anything that looks like a close advisor to the president. And so if you want to treat these things as independent, as you've done for the last 40 years, it's not for me to ship it. And there's a very powerful notion here, which I like to call the prescriptive constitution, which means that often institutions get set up before their constitutionality is litigated. Then 50 years later, you look at it and you say, you know, this isn't quite copacetic. We really ought to shut it down. Uh, but you don't want to shut it down because there's just too much that takes place. The recent decision in the Calafro case, C-H-I-A-F-O-L-A, 
on the Electoral College. Uh, what all the courts said is, you think that free delegates may be a fine idea, but we've had bound delegates in the United States for over 200 years, and we're not going to do that by a judicial decision uh, because the practice is too powerful. And that's essentially one of the things that happened in Humphrey's executive. But there was a key mistake in there. Uh, what he did is he said, well, what are the powers of these agencies? And he used a word which is a tip-off that something is not quite right. He said these agencies are quasi-legislative and quasi-judicial. They're also quasi-executive. Now, what does it mean that they're quasi-legislative? It means that they make rules. What does it mean that they're quasi-judicial? It means that they can put together a panel to decide on infraction. But he leaves out quasi-executive because they have enforcement action. So I think the correct position on these things is to say, it's hard enough to figure out whether or not the agencies are independent or executive branch. Uh, there's a lot of overlap between the two of them. Given the practice, we let that stand. But what we do insist is that the judicial part of this be taken out, put into a separate body. What kind of body? Well, there are things known as Article I courts. That's another oxymoron. The judicial power, meaning all of it, is vested in Article III courts with life tenure. But nobody believes that. And so what it turned out is starting in the 1850s, they had informal customs court, uh, which were, quote, Article I courts with judges appointed for a limited terms. And that turns out to be sanctioned and approved in 1855. And that practice of Article I courts is now well established. And they are independent. They have long terms, and they're not subject to the president. And the moment you decide that a commission like the SEC can appoint somebody to prosecute somebody inside the agency, that's when you get the abuse. So I think the claims of history are such that you keep the judicial and the portion separate, and the legislative and the executives overlap. I don't think Sunstein and Bermuda are right to say that anything is insured by anything, uh, but I don't see any systematic abuse in that that I'd want to change. But the horror stories that come with these ad hoc trials inside these administrative agencies, which were sanctioned, for example, in the Dodd-Frank Act, which is the source of the mischief with respect to Mr. Lucia, that I think really does have to be changed. So one of the things that I did in my book, which is not done here, is I tried to figure out why was it that 19th century administrative law seemed to work, whereas modern 20th century administrative law seems not to work. And the 19th century administrative lawyers essentially had the following rule. If there are a lot of repetitive cases dealing with land grants or dealing with railroads or dealing with uh, military personnel, they're hiring, retiring, retention, and dismissal, and there's a uniform practice developed by an agency, follow it. Which means that when an agency deviates in an ad hoc case, you were very suspicious. In the modern rule, we defer in exactly the opposite way. If the current guy wants to disregard a practice that's been around for 50 or 100 years, perfectly okay. And so it's a very different form of deference. And the person who completely misses it was Justice Stevens, who cites all the earlier cases in his famous Chevron case without understanding what the differential arrangement turns out to be. So, you know, it's like everything else. These stories have long and complex background. And it's just not enough to sort of say, I think it's okay. What you really have to do is to spend much more time plumbing the history on the ways in which these things start to operate. The thing I'll ask you in closing, another critique that Senator Vermeule attempt to address is the one about 
how much the administrative state insulates the policymaking process from democratic accountability. And Sunstein and Vermeule sort of shrug this off. So I'll read you again uh, from their work, their take on this. Congress, which is democratically accountable, is subject to the citizenry, even if it grants broad discretion to administrative agencies. If Congress does that, perhaps that's exactly what the citizenry wants it to do. If so, what's the democratic problem? And then they add, recall that all of the major agencies are creations of Congress. In any case, many of the most important agencies, including the cabinet departments, are run by people who serve at the pleasure of the president, and so are, in that sense, highly accountable to him. So, I mean, I think it's fair to say, Richard, that as democratic chains of control go, this one is pretty attenuated, but what do you make of this argument? Well, it's the same problem that you always have. It's a kind of a bundling problem. So what happens is there's a president or a Congress, and they have to rule on 10 issues, and you agree with them on eight of them, and you strongly disagree with them on two. You only have one vote, and that one vote has to be the summation of your principle over all 10 cases. Uh, you will not vote the two that you dislike uh, because it's too important for you to keep the eight that you do like. And everybody else will have a slightly different valuation and so forth. So it turns out that if you bundle the kinds of legislation that you pass or the administrative actions that you take, you'll be relatively immune from removal because of this particular phenomenon. Uh, so the point about a constitutional attack, this statute is unconstitutional, or an administrative attack, this thing goes beyond the powers of the agency, is to say, I can now isolate the one uh, which is really suspect and attack that one. And by attacking that one, I don't have to bring down the entire structure. Now, one of these really dangerous structural provisions in administrative law is the doctrine of standing in connection with what they call attacks on a particular statute, but being ultra-virus. That is beyond the power of the state to pass. Uh, the key case is a two-case, Frothingham and Mellon in Massachusetts and Mellon decided in 1923, uh, there was a statute about giving AIDS to Maternity Act to mothers uh, so they could help small children. And it was challenged on the ground that this was not consistent um, with the spending clause, which only allowed you to tax and spend for the general welfare of the United States. And the position against this was taking care of some women is a transfer payment from some people to another. It's fundamentally different from deciding to mount the national defense or put together a system of roads or something like that. There's a lot of complications associated with this thing. But what Justice Sutherland wrote for a unanimous court was that there's no individual who suffered special harm, and so therefore nobody can attack this, which means what are you supposed to do? You could refuse to take the benefits from the matrim uh, from the matrimonial causes situation, from the Maternity Act, rather, but you still have to pay the taxes. So everybody joins in. Uh, so the position that I have taken for a very, very long time is if the change that you have is ultra-virus, that is, they're not allowed to do it. It's not a matter of majority vote. You have to amend the Constitution, and anybody should be able to enjoin it. But then there's another side of standing which goes in exactly the opposite way, uh, which is you have an administrative agency that hears a lot of things, takes good testimony from both sides and so forth. And now somebody wants to challenge it, not on the grounds that its decision to approve or to deny the dam is ultra-virus. That's what they're supposed to do. Uh, but there's a following asymmetry which develops in modern administrative law that really needs to be addressed. On the one hand, if the agency decides that it's going to veto the new dam, 
Uh, the only person who could attack it is the beneficiary, and he has standing, no problem. But the courts have developed an extraordinary sense of deference so that virtually anything they do is judged by a very low version of the arbitrary and capricious standard. On the other hand, if they approve it, Anybody under current administrative law can go into court, no matter how extreme their position, and they're entitled to give the uh, particular decision a hard look. So there's a fundamental asymmetry. If you prove a development process like a pipeline or a dam or a railroad, um, uh, those things are going to be subject to years of delay. If you deny it, there's almost nothing that the firm that is applied can do to get that thing into place. So what I've argued for is that you have to rebalance that particular stuff. What's interesting about the Sunstein and Bermuda book is the hard look doctrine uh, from a case called State Farm in 1983 receives no attention whatsoever, even though it's one of the great pillars of administrative law, and that this particular imbalance has come to play over and over. Uh, some years ago, I did some work for a firm known or a consulting operation or an advocacy group called Conserve America. And I went through all of these cases and went through the Trump statute, which was designed or regulation designed to modernize it. And I became quite convinced that this asymmetry was absolutely endemic. Now, maybe I'm wrong, which I don't think is the case. Most people do think I'm wrong, which is the case. That's generally the case. But the issue is if you're writing a book about the general health of administrative law, if this is the issue on which every environmental group, every industry group is going to coalesce, you have to take a position on it. And I have no idea what their particular position would be, but it's certainly not enough to say that Lon Fuller, who never in a thousand years were Worried about the question of delegated authorities in administrative hearings like this, oh, he would have either agreed with us or smiled upon us if he disagreed with us. That's just not an answer to some of the most pressing problems that we face today. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, at Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org. 